Hey there, this is Brian Zond, and welcome to my sermon podcast. I'm glad that you're interested in the sermons that I preach here at Word of Life Church in St. Joseph, Missouri. And if you ever feel inclined to help us by supporting us financially, you can do that at our website, wolc.com. Thank you. Let's go to Acts chapter 2 and verse 41. So those who welcomed his message were baptized, and that day about 3,000 persons were added. On Pentecost Sunday, I want to preach on the about 3,000 who were baptized on the day the church was born. Pentecost. Well, Pentecost Sunday is the culmination of the grand gospel story that we began telling six months ago today, 26 weeks ago, half a year ago was the first Sunday of Advent. And so we start the story by waiting, 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 and then the birth of Jesus. And we go all the way through the life of Jesus, his death, his burial, his resurrection, his ascension, and the Holy Spirit being poured out upon the church on the day of Pentecost is really the grand culmination of the gospel story, and that's what we're looking at today. So for 40 days after his resurrection, Jesus appears to his disciples, and then he ascends to the right hand of God. That is, he ascends to the place of absolute authority that he might fill all things everywhere with himself. But just prior to his ascension to the right hand of God, Jesus told his disciples that they should wait in Jerusalem until they were clothed with power from on high. Their task was to go into all the world and preach the gospel to all the nations. But wait, wait until you've received power from on high. And so they gathered in that upper room, the 11 disciples. The mother of Jesus was there, the brothers of Jesus, and others as well, so that there was about 120. And they're in that upper room, and they don't know how long they're going to have to wait. They're just waiting and praying. And then one of the Jewish feasts arrived. Shavuot or Pentecost because it comes 50 days after Passover. So Penta, Pentecost, Shavuot or Pentecost. It, it was the festival that commemorated the giving of the Ten Commandments to Moses on Mount Sinai when God came upon the mountain with fire and wind and a storm and smoke and gave the Ten Commandments, the law, the Torah, to Moses. That's what Shavuot or Pentecost was about. Well, they, they're up there in that upper room, about 120 apostles, mother of Jesus, brothers of Jesus, others as well. And when the day of Pentecost had fully come, and they're all together in one accord in that upper room, suddenly there came from heaven the sound of a storm. A mighty rushing wind fills this upper room and there appears to them flames of fire. This is like 
what happened on Mount Sinai, but it's in the upper room. This rushing, violent, stormy wind and flames of fire and these tongues of fire rest upon each one of those in the upper room and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and they began to speak in other languages as the Spirit gave them utterance. This created a commotion in the city. People gathered and they were amazed. There was all kinds of people all kinds of Jewish people from all over the Mediterranean world there for the festival, for Shavuot, for Pentecost. And it took them a few moments, but then they realized, you know what? All of these who are speaking are Galileans. But we're hearing them in our native tongues as they speak of the wonderful works of God. Whatever can this mean? There were some among them that were cynical mockers. And they said, oh, they're just drunk, which doesn't make any sense, but that's what they said. That's when Peter stood up and he said, oh, people of Judea and Jerusalem, listen to me. These are not drunk, as you suppose. I mean, it's what, it's nine o'clock in the morning. No, this is that which was spoken of by the prophet Joel, that it shall come up it shall come to pass in the last days, says God, that I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men will see visions, your old men will dream dreams. Upon my men servants and my maid servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they shall prophesy and there will be many signs and wonders to behold and whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And then he begins to preach Jesus to them. And it came about that about 3,000 received the message, believed the message, and were baptized. It's the birth of the church. That's, that's where it starts. That's our roots. That's where it begins. Now, is there any significance? that the number added to the church on the day of Pentecost was about 3,000 persons. Oh, there most definitely is. And to understand the significance of the 3,000, we need to revisit the story of Moses on Mount Sinai. And so it's three months after the Exodus, right? Moses brings the children of Israel out of their slavery in Egypt through the Red Sea into the wilderness. Three months later, they arrive at Mount Sinai. And as they camp there, God descends upon Mount Sinai in fire and smoke and thunder and lightning. The people are terrified. And then the Lord summons Moses to come up into the mountain. Moses leaves the camp, he climbs up Mount Sinai, and he enters the consuming fire, the fire of God. And Moses is on the mountain with God for 40 days and 40 nights, receiving the Torah, receiving the Ten Commandments engraved upon stone. Meanwhile, in the camp, the Israelites are beginning to wonder, Whatever happened to Moses, it's been over a month. He's been up there. 
in that fire. And they said, well, you know what happened to Moses. Uh, Moses is no more. He's been consumed in the fire. And so we need some new gods. And they got together some of the gold that they had been able to bring out of Egypt with them. And they formed the golden calf. And they presented the golden calf, this idol, to the congregation of Israel. And they said, oh, Israel, behold your gods that brought you out of Egypt. And then they built an altar for the golden calf. And they sacrificed to the golden calf. They worshiped the golden calf. And then they began to dance around the golden calf. And that's when Moses came back down the mountain. Oh, boy. Let's pick up the story in Exodus chapter 32, verse 26. Then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, Who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered around him. He said to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Put your sword on your side, each of you, Go back and forth from gate to gate throughout the camp and each of you kill your brother, your friend, and your neighbor. The sons of Levi did as Moses commanded and about 3,000 of the people fell on that day. Ah, there it is. There it is. On the day that the law was given, about 3,000 people were put to death by Levitical swords. But on Pentecost, the festival that commemorates this very event, the giving of the law on Mount Sinai, on Pentecost, about 3,000 people were not slain, but they were brought into newness of life and added to the church. The Apostle Paul describes the law as the ministry of death, chiseled in letters on stone tablets. And then he says this, God has made us competent to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the spirit, for the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. Come on now. We are not the sons of Levi going through the camp with a sword, killing sinners, not even rhetorically. If we think it is our, our mission to bring forth a rhetorical sword and just to cut sinners to pieces because of their sin, we have remained stuck in the old covenant. The Apostle Paul goes on and says, we are not ministers of condemnation, but ministers of reconciliation. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. He didn't send you into the world to condemn the world. He didn't send us to go forth with rhetorical swords of the law and cut sinners to pieces. We're followers of Jesus, filled with the Holy Spirit, preaching good news to sinners. That God forgives sins and they can be reconciled to God. Amen. Let's say it this way. The 3,000 slain by the sword of the law at Sinai 
were raised from the dead and added back to the congregation at Pentecost. Acts 2, verse 41. So those who welcomed his message were baptized, and that day about 3,000 persons were added, were restored, were given back. That's the message you're to see here. That when the law comes, it cuts down 3,000 people. But when the Spirit comes, 3,000 are restored to the congregation. That's good news. That's beautiful. And what did the 3,000 then do next? Verse 42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. The 3,000 who were baptized into the new covenant on the day of Pentecost and became the first church. This is, this is the birth. This is the beginning. This is where it all starts. They devoted themselves, these about 3,000, to four practices. And they are the same practices that powerfully shaped and formed the life of the early church. Now, in verse 42 that I just read out of the NRSV translation, that's what I typically use here, says that these four practices were the apostles' teaching, fellowship, the breaking of bread, and the prayers. Those are the four things. I say, okay, these are the four things we're going to really practice and do and devote ourselves to. Now, this is a perfectly good English translation, but I want to give you four words derived more directly from the original text in the hope that these new old words, they may be new to you, but they're actually very old words rooted in the text, will help you see this in a fresh new way. And so we could say it this way, beginning with Pentecost, the first church and the early church devoted itself to apostolic didache, koinonia, Eucharist liturgy. Let's look at them. First thing they devoted themselves to was the apostles' teaching or apostolic didache. Can you say didache? Didache. It simply means teaching or doctrine. They devoted themselves to the apostles' didache, their teaching, their doctrine. I'm using the word didache to indicate, though, that I'm referring to something both very specific and also ancient, not new, not modern, didn't show up yesterday, it's 2,000 years old. Now there was a, in fact, there was a text produced in the first century called the Didache of the Apostles. And it, it, deals, it deals with three things, with Christian ethics, with the practice of sacrament, and with um, how to run the church, how to operate the church, you know, Structure for the church. So, so it deals with, with Christian ethics. Here's what Christians can do and they shouldn't do if we're going to have ethics informed by Christ. Uh, it, also, it also deals with uh, baptism and, and communion, the sacraments, and how that should be administered. And it deals with church structure. Uh, it almost made it into the canon of the New Testament. It, it, isn't, it isn't part of the inspired text of the New Testament, but you can read it. It's interesting, if nothing else. Um, but what I'm saying is that the early church was devoted to a specific apostolic teaching doctrine didache. 
And in saying that, what I'm really stressing is that Christianity is a received faith. Yeah, we don't get to make it up. It is handed to us. Beginning with that about 3,000 that become the charter members of the church and now it's spread around the world and it has come down through the ages, passed on from one generation to another. Last Sunday I preached on Jesus, the church, the Bible and Christianity and how although they are related and interconnected in obvious ways, they are still distinct. And we've learned that Christianity can, because of the nature of what it is, grow, develop, change, adjust, all of that sort of thing. And that's true. But as Christianity grows, adjusts, and develops over time, we must maintain connection with our apostolic roots. We can't, we can't just fly off and make it up. We have to stay connected to the apostolic dedicate, to the great tradition, to the apostolic roots. The apostolic dedicate, by the way, this is what we find in the Apostles' Creed. And then more precisely in the Nicene Creed. That's, that's the thing. See, Christianity can grow, develop, alter, adjust through time, and it does, and it must. But we have, we have a safeguard. We have the generous boundaries of the apostolic creeds, the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed. As long as we stay within those generous confines, we are still solidly orthodox, but we can still respond and adjust throughout time as we need to. It was, um, Perry, it was 14 years ago. Time flies. 14 years ago, for the first time, we were on a train from Rome to Assisi. Remember that day? I always think of it as one of my favorite days. I would live that day like Groundhog Day over and over. That'd be a great day. Perry says, let's do it. She's always ready to do something like that. And so um, we, were, we were on our way to Assisi because I wanted to explore the life of this great 13th century saint, Francis of Assisi. I'd, become, I'd read about 14, at this point I'd read about 14 biographies on Assisi, was fascinated by him, felt like he had something to say to contemporary Christianity, and I wanted to thoroughly explore his life by hiring an expert on the life of Francis, who was born and raised in Assisi, to introduce us to his life for two days. So we're on the train, it's about a two and a half hour train ride from Rome to Assisi, and on the train ride I am doing two things. I am listening to Echo Silence, Patience and Grace by the Foo Fighters. That's a great album. Great album. So I got, I got in the earbuds and I'm listening to Echo Silence, Patience and Grace. And I'm also on my phone studying the various English, the differing English translations of the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed because I feel like we need to really uh, emphasize our rootedness within that kind of creedal Christianity. And while I'm doing this, there was a moment of self-awareness. I thought, oh, look what I'm doing. Apostles, Foo Fighters, Francis of Assisi, BZ, all mixed up kind of together. And this, this phrase came to me, engaging orthodoxy, engaging orthodoxy. 
By orthodoxy, I mean, you know, we, we are rooted in the historic faith, the apostolic didache, the faith once delivered to the saints. We're not making this up. This is what has come down to us for two days. It's orthodoxy. But it's also contemporary, able to engage the contemporary culture. And so if I want to, I'll preach some sermons inspired by, say, Foo Fighters songs. It has happened before. It could very well happen this August. We'll see. They've got a new album coming out. One can hope. And this, as much as anything, explain. Well, it, it, to me, it's what word of life really is. You know, people, say, people ask me all the time, what kind of church is word of life? And I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> it's a Jesus church. And that's for sure. But there are some characteristics. And it's that on the one hand, we are, we are contemporary. You know, you don't do finding God in the music and not be a contemporary church. You're not going to get that in a Catholic church. God bless them, but you're not going to get that there. Uh, on the other hand, though, we have these deep roots. You know, we're confessing the creed every week, praying the Lord's Prayer, following a church calendar, right within the confines of the apostolic didache. So we're like engaging. Maybe, maybe we're just rock and roll Anglican. Maybe that's what we are. I'm not sure what we are. We're something like that. All right. Then the next word, koinonia. This is a Greek word. I mentioned a couple of weeks ago that, that you know, has come into English. It's actually thought of also now as an English word, but it's a Greek word, koinonia. It means, it means sharing, um, participation, uh, partnership, fellowship, um, common union, communion. That's that's what that word means. It's a, it's a very large word that communicates a shared life. Um, to be baptized into the church is to be inducted into a common shared life because Christianity is not a solo project. It's not something you do alone. Jesus is your personal savior for sure in that you are his sheep. He knows you and he calls you by name and you can talk to him and he can talk to you. You can have a relationship with Jesus. But though Jesus is your personal savior, he is not your private savior. You, you can't say, well, you know, I like Jesus, but it's the rest of those people. I like Jesus, but the church, pfft. No, Jesus says, no, I'm going to be your personal savior, but not your private savior. I'm going to invite you into a common shared life. Um, you know, the church is the place where we learn over time to, to know and care for people with whom we have little or nothing in common except for Jesus. Amen. And then we find out that Jesus is enough to have in common. And we learn to know these people and care for them that we would never have met outside the church. If we just continued on our life apart from the church, we'd have never met these people. 
We'd never known them. We would never cared about them. Another way of saying it is, another way of saying it is, the church is where we learn to love our neighbor as ourselves. You know, we can't just say, well, you know, God, I, I want to love God with all my heart because that's easy because God's cool and all. But, but I don't want to love my neighbor. No, the church is where we learn to love our neighbor as ourselves, and the church is the body of Christ. Our union with Christ is not something we do as a, as a lone individual. The moment we have union with Christ, we have union with our brothers and sisters because we are in the body of Christ. And Paul does a lot with this. He says, you know, the hand can't say, oh, I, I can't stand those foot Christians. Those foot Christians, their doctrine's terrible. I just, oh, they're such, so low church or way down there. <laughs> you know, and, and you have eyes and ears in there. No, no, no. We're all in one body. We're in the body of Christ. And that brings us to that third thing, and that's Eucharist. The body of Christ is the church. The body of Christ is also the sacrament of the Eucharist. Eucharist is a Greek word means thanksgiving. The idea is that we thank God. We give thanks. We give thanks. thanks. This, is, this is the original Thanksgiving meal. And here's what the Apostle Paul says about this. The cup of blessing... Which we bless is our, here's that word again, koinonia. Our fellowship, our partnership, our participation, our sharing, our common union, our communion in the blood of Christ. And the bread which we break is our koinonia, our fellowship, partnership, participation, sharing, common union, communion in the body of of Christ. And as such, it is, it is a sacrament. That's the word we use. It's a sacrament. What, what is a sacrament? Well, a sacrament, see, communion is not just um, symbolic. It is that. Okay, we get it. You know, the, the bread like the body of Jesus, the wine like the blood of Jesus. We get that. That's, there's symbol there. But it's not just symbolic, it's sacramental. And what is, what is a sacrament? A sacrament is a sign, but not just a sign because then it would be mere symbolism. It's a sign that is a portal to another world. Oh, did you know there's another world? You didn't know this. Oh my goodness. Where to start? Okay. There is the world of matter. In the beginning, God created what? The heavens and the earth. There's the, the material world, but there is also the heavenly world, or as we more typically say, the spiritual world. There is the world of unseen existences. The problem is we have become so good at understanding, perceiving, relating to the material world that we're like a, a blind cave salamander. We've lost our spiritual sight. And we're unaware of this world of unseen existences. Well, a sacrament, baptism, communion, is a symbolic port. It's, it's a symbol, but it's also more than a symbol. It's a portal that allows us to participate in the body of Christ, participate in the blood of Christ. Christianity is a sacramental faith. It's not merely uh, abstract ideas. 
Christian, to practice Christianity, it's not just sitting around having ideas. I, I have some ideas. Ideas about God and ideas about Jesus. No, it's sacramental in that in order to properly, truly, faithfully practice Christianity, we need things like water, bread, and wine. Sacramental. And the church was devoted to this. You say, well, how how does this work? How, How? Oh, quit being so empiricist. I don't know how it works. I don't know exactly. But somehow, participating in the bread and the cup takes me into a participation in the mystical body and blood of Jesus, and that life is communicated to me. Christianity is a confession, not an explanation. We will try to explain all that we can, and we can explain some things, but we we will always confess more than we can explain. I can't really explain the resurrection, I confess it. I can't really explain how Holy Communion allows us to actually participate in the body and blood of Christ, but I confess it because it's what Scripture reveals. And then there's this fourth thing that devoted themselves to liturgy. Liturgeo is the Greek word, and it's just anglicized the liturgy. It's in the New Testament, it's usually translated worship or service, or you could just think of it as worship service. The early church wasn't just devoted to prayer, they were devoted to the prayers. That's what it says the prayers. The definite article, prayers. It wasn't just an answer. Oh, we're just going to devote ourselves to prayer. What are you going to pray? I don't know. We're just, you know. I don't know. We'll make it up as we go. No, they weren't just devoted. They, they prayed that way too. They prayed, you know, from the heart, spontaneous sort of thing. They did that. Of course they did. But they also devoted themselves to the prayers, to the liturgy. They employed liturgies of prayers so that they might be properly formed in the faith. If you want to be properly formed, you can't rely on yourself to do all your own praying because you're limited to your own self. And so what we need is the wisdom that is beyond us, that was before us, that is broader and wider than we are, and we access that through praying the prayers. So... The early church not only prayed, the church prayed the prayers. And you say, well, what prayers did they pray? Well, of course, first of all, they prayed the Psalms. We just gave out a a book of the Psalms to our graduates. They prayed the Psalms because it was already their prayer book. But now they were going to begin to pray them in new ways. They're praying the same words, but with new revelation because they begin to see Jesus more and more and more and more in those texts. So they, they continued praying the Psalms, but now in new light. They, they, of course, prayed the Lord's Prayer, the prayer that Jesus gave them to pray. That's why we pray it here every Sunday, because Jesus said, when you pray, say, and he gave us a prayer. So when we pray, we say, our Father, who art in heaven. And they were praying the prayers they were beginning to compose. Some of those very earliest prayers are, you know, get, end up in the New Testament. But, you know, the church, I mean... The New Testament is complete as far as the, the writings, the text by the end of the first century, but the church continues through time to be inspired to compose prayers that help us to pray well. They were devoted 
to praying those prayers. And so at Mount Sinai, the law struck down about 3,000 people. But on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit raised up 3,000 people to newness of life. Then those 3,000 people maintained their connection to this newness of life by devoting themselves to the apostolic didache, koinonia fellowship, the holy sacrament of the Eucharist, and the sacred liturgies of prayer. We are the descendants of those 3,000 original charter member believers of the church. And we can devote ourselves, listen, we can devote ourselves to those same four things. And we can do it together and we can do it right now. You want to? (laughs) Stand up with me then. Watch how this works. They devoted themselves to the apostolic dedicate, the apostles' doctrine, the apostles' teaching. Well, in just a moment, guess what we're going to do? We're going to confess what? The apostles' creed, like we do every Sunday. We're going to confess that. They devoted themselves to koinonia, to fellowship, to a shared life. Well, here we are. Here we are, all together. Here we are, sharing life together. Uh, They devoted themselves to the Eucharist. There it is. We're getting ready to come and receive and participate, have koinonia, not only with one another, but with Christ, with his blood and with his body. And they devoted themselves to the liturgy, to the prayers. And after we get done confessing the apostolic creed, we're going to pray one of the great prayers of the church, the prayer of confession, that we might position ourselves to receive the forgiveness of the Lord. Amen and amen. So join with me now, first of all, in confessing the apostolic didache in the form of the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Now join with me in this liturgical prayer this gift of the church to the church as we confess our sins and open to receive the forgiveness of the Lord. Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed. By what we have done and by what we have left undone, we have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry and we humbly repent. For the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. Amen. And God is gracious to all who confess their sins and in humility ask for mercy. In the name of Jesus Christ, your sins are forgiven. And this is the table, not of the church, but of the Lord. It is made ready for those who love him.
and for those who want to love him more. So come, you who have much faith and you who have little. You who have been here often and you who have not been here long. You who have tried to follow and you who have failed, come. Because it is the Lord who invites you. It is his will that those who want him should meet him here. Amen.